Is your money working as hard as it could be for your future? A decade ago, Robinhood changed the investment landscape when they pioneered commission-free stock trading. Today, they continue to offer innovative products to help users build a better financial future, like IRAs, ETFs, options for qualified traders, and much more. Take control of your financial future with Robinhood. Download the app or visit Robinhood.com to learn more. That's Robinhood.com. Disclosures. Investing involves risk. Other fees may apply. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIP. PC is a registered broker dealer. Good morning, Brew Daily Show. I'm Neil Fryman. And I'm Toby Howell. Today, why you won't find music from Lady Gaga, U2, Bad Bunny, or Taylor Swift on TikTok anymore. Then a highly contentious and emotional hearing just went down between senators and big tech CEOs on Capitol Hill. It's Thursday, February 1st. Woo, we made it. Let's ride. Yes, Toby, it is February, but it's not just any February. It's a leap year February. So there's an extra day tacked on at the end. And this isn't just because we feel bad that February gets shortchanged with 28 days. It's necessary to keep the calendar in sync with the seasons because despite what you might have learned in first grade, a year isn't exactly 365 days. It takes about 365 and a quarter days for the Earth to complete its orbit around the sun. And we account for that surplus by making one out of every four years, 366 days. If we didn't have leap years, then the seasons would completely swap every 750 years and the middle of the summer would be the middle of the winter and vice versa and the united states would just not be able to handle thanksgiving pool parties i did the math even further though so yes earth orbits the sun every 365 in a quarter days but it's 0.2256 days but every a thousand years the year becomes shorter by around 5.5 seconds according to this astronomy forum I was on. So that means eventually we won't need a leap year anymore and we can start cutting days again. So 0.256 days is 22,000 extra seconds. And if we're looking at 5.5 seconds every thousand years, in just over 4 million years, we'll be good. Do not get too comfortable with that 29th day, February. <laughs> exactly. We'll just cut it out eventually. Before we jump into the show today, we have a quick word from our sponsor, Veeam. It's February 1st, and Veeam is still here supporting the pod. Ride or die, Neil. It's so Veeam of them to stick around like this. You know, what do you want in a data security provider? Someone who dips out quietly at the end of the month or someone who sticks around and stands by your side? I want someone like Veeam to February and beyond. In celebration of Veeam sticking around for another month, head to Veeam.com today. That's V-E-E-A-M.com today. It has been a minute since we've had a big tech hearing on Capitol Hill. Yesterday, the CEOs of Meta, X, TikTok, Snap, and Discord testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee about the issue of child safety on their platforms. This was about as bipartisan of a hearing that you'll see these days as senators from both sides of the aisle laid into the big tech leaders for their lax measures on protecting kids online. At one point, Mark Zuckerberg stood up, turned around to direct directly apologized to relatives of online child abuse victims sitting in the crowd. Some of the parents even brought pictures of their children who had died by suicide as a result of online bullying. Throughout the tense hearing, the key feeling permeating the chamber 
was one of frustration. Senator Amy Klobuchar lamented that no bills have been passed. Quote, I just want to get this stuff done. I'm so tired of this. It's been 28 years, she said, which both shows the power of big tech lobbying and the inability for Congress to figure out how to regulate this sensitive topic. Neil, a lot of reporters covering this hearing said it was unlike anything they'd ever seen due to the presence of the crowd there. It was intense. Very intense. I would say that Zuck and the TikTok CEO took most of the heat, even though there were five companies there. That moment of, I encourage everyone to kind of go watch the video. Uh, Josh Hawley is grilling one of the senators, is grilling Mark Zuckerberg and saying, have you ever apologized to the families and the victims of people who were harmed, of the kids who were harmed on your platform? And they go back and forth a little bit. And Zuckerberg finally just says, okay. And then he turns around and speaks directly to the audience and apologizes. And it was just this remarkable moment that I think speaks to this emotional this emotional hearing. But when I'm talking about Amy Klobuchar and the other senators, yes, they ha want have wanted to do something for decades, but no meaningful legislation around kids safety on social media has been passed in 28 years. Obviously, social media wasn't even around then. They keep talking to each other. They keep wanting to do something. But social media platforms are not going to be compelled to make dramatic, significant changes unless Congress compels them to do something. I don't know, you know, this hearing was obviously emotional and intense and everyone got a little riled up, but I don't know if it'll actually lead to anything. Yeah, it was definitely emotional. I mean, you mentioned Zuckerberg took the brunt of the attacks. He opened, his opening statement was about how the existing body of scientific work has not shown a causal link between using social media and how young people have worse mental health. When he said that, Audience members literally laughed in the crowd because they're saying, how could there not be any link? And yes, even though these studies that have been shown that it's more of a correlation than a causation, still you have these parents back there who have suffered firsthand from some of the effects of, of social media on their children. Meta's been under heavy fire of late. It's being sued by dozens of states right now. There's a separate lawsuit in New Mexico accusing it of promoting underage accounts to predators. So definitely the brunt of the attacks. One of the big things that the senators tried to get was to have the CEOs commit on the spot to this Kids Online Safety Act, which would require platforms to enable really strong safety settings. Only Snap CEO Evan Spiegel and then X's Linda Yaccarino did so on the spot. The others kind of hedged their bets there. So, again, if you're looking for concrete outcomes, they tried to get one on the spot. And they only got two out of out of five or six. What was uh, interesting to me, finally, is that uh, there was no YouTube, no Alphabet, right. uh, which owns YouTube. And we know from surveys that YouTube is by far the number one video, video platform for kids. 93% of kids said they went on YouTube in the past month. Meanwhile, the second place by far is TikTok with only 68%. So I thought that was a pretty glaring omission not to have uh, YouTube uh, YouTube CEO in there as well. Moving on, the first Federal Reserve meeting of the year happened yesterday, and as Jerome Powell took the podium for his press conference, investors were praying he'd say one thing, that an interest rate cut was on the table for the Fed's next meeting in March. He did not bite. Powell threw cold water on Wall Street's hopes and dreams when he said he doesn't think it's likely that he'd cut rates in March because he's hesitant to hang that mission-accomplished banner against inflation. Yes, inflation has come down dramatically since its peak in 2022, but it still remains above the Fed's target of 2%. Powell doesn't want to hit the gas on the economy, which is what lowering interest rates does, until he's 100% confident that inflation isn't coming back for the sequel no one asked for. To give you the big picture about what's going on in Fed world, interest rates are at a 22-year high after the Fed jacked them up over the past two years. But in the past
past four meetings dating back to last summer, Powell hasn't changed them at all, including yesterday's. And that's because really the best case scenario is playing out. The job market has remained strong. Economic growth is better than expected. And inflation has come down. So there's little urgency to begin cutting rates to juice the economy. Yeah, I mean, you said that this meeting kind of threw cold water on the on the market. So I would say the water is is room temperature. It's maybe lukewarm, nice to the feel, because even though that there's no rate cuts coming in March, he did say that we believe that our policy rate is likely at its peak for this tightening cycle, which is just Fed peak for saying we're going to keep them where they're at, which, again, if we go back a few months ago, like rates were rising at a a rate fa- unlike any that we've seen in kind of like the last 20 years or so. So I would say that the water isn't freezing cold because, again, we're, we are kind of at this homeostasis point right now where where rates are elevated, but things are chugging along quite I nicely. I disagree. This was the investors were betting that uh, they would start cutting rates in March, and that had really propelled the stock market higher. This so-called Fed pivot, where the Fed would start cutting rates. You know, you've looked at all of our our brokerages; they've been going through the roof over the past couple of year, uh, months, and S and P has been hitting all-time highs. When the when Jerome Powell went up to the podium and said, "We're not cutting rates in March," stocks plummeted. Stocks S and P at its worst. Worst day uh, in four months, and the Nasdaq was down 2.2 percent. Its worst day in three months. So investors did not react well to this because a lot of them had thrown their chips in the basket, saying that we'd probably get a rate cut in March, and now it doesn't look like it's going to happen until at least May. Yeah, we do have the percentages. Financial markets see about a 34 percent chance the Fed will lower rates in March. That's down from 73 percent a month ago. So yeah, there's about there. You can see the delta that this meeting kind of created. If we just zoom out, though, you, I mean. You mentioned it kind of at the top and take stock of how the economy has done under these 22 year high rates. Inflation fell steeply. It's ending the year right around 2.6% according to the Fed's favored measure. Economy expanded more quickly than we thought. GDP climbed up to 2.5%. And the jobs market stayed stronger than anyone thought. Unemployment rate in December was just at 3.7%, which was generally in line with where it was before the Fed started hiking rates. So again, we've talked, we've said the word soft landing, we've said the word Goldilocks economy, but those figures right there show that we've navigated this rate cycle pretty dang well. And the next big thing on the economic calendar is on Friday, which is tomorrow, which is the jobs report. And obviously, uh, Jerome Powell and all of us will be very keyed into what that has to say. Let's move on. TikTok is wrapped up in another major spat, not over its ties to China or its relation to child safety online, but over its usage of catalogs of popular music. Universal Music Group, which owns the right to songs from Taylor Swift, Drake, Olivia Rodrigo, etc has begun pulling its music from TikTok unless the two can come to a last-minute licensing agreement. There's a whole bunch of reasons why UMG and TikTok aren't seeing eye-to-eye artificial intelligence, copyright infringements, but the biggest one is that UMG felt TikTok simply wasn't compensating the label and its artists fairly. It's looking like a much bigger loss for TikTok than UMG right now. UMG is the second largest record label in the world and said TikTok only accounts for 1% of its ad revenue, despite its artists representing 8 out of 10 of the most popular singers on the platform last year. However, around 60% of TikTok videos include some sort of music. So if you suddenly lose 8 out of 10 of your biggest stars... That's not very good. No, there's a there's an intense negotiation going on over uh, licensing this music and UMG. Uh 
on Tuesday night wrote this uh, wrote this letter to TikTok, a very scalding letter, and basically just pulled the nuclear option in any negotiation, which which is just I'm going to walk away, and we'll see how much leverage I actually have, and we'll actually see how much leverage UMG uh, does have on TikTok. I mean, TikTok started as a lip syncing app, remember, musically, and then it became TikTok. So music is a part of TikTok's DNA. And while it has expanded into different types of videos, uh, you know, music is still at, very much at the core of what uh, TikTok does. So we'll see if TikTok, uh, you know, kind of makes any concessions, uh, pays up for UMG. But I think one thing that it can't really address or hasn't said it would address is AI. UMG CEO is so has sounded the alarm about AI music for a long time. It went after, went after that AI generated Drake and Weekend song very harshly. And so I think unless TikTok cleans up its act in the you know letting AI music proliferate on its platform, UMG might not come back to the table anytime soon. I actually saw some people likening this to the writers and actors strike that we underwent uh, last year. There's going to be a lot of pain felt in the short term because, again, it's going to hurt kind of artists' exposure and maybe hurt their bottom line a little bit. But also UMG's hope is that it will lead to big changes, substantive changes that benefits everyone in the music industry long term. So UMG's kind of putting themselves as kind of like leading this noble fight against TikTok. They want people to get compensated more fairly. But also TikTok is a kingmaker. I mean, a lot of these artists rely on TikTok for exposure. And I mean, if we look at Taylor Swift, he doesn't really need exposure. But Cruel Summer, which was released under UMG, topped the Billboard Hot 100 four years after it was released, partially because TikTok made it a trend once again. I mean, Murder on the Dance Floor from Saltburn is also having a resurgence in a moment, mostly because Saltburn, but also because TikTok's role in it. And so the giant risk here with UMG's gamble is TikTok could fare just fine without its giant catalog. It eventually would force UMG and other music companies into much worse negotiating positions. So it's a fine line they're walking. I don't think they have as much leverage right. as as they think. I think a lot of other, you know, under the radar artists are going big on TikTok. I don't think anyone cares so much about those massive songs that are under the UMG uh, publisher label. So I don't know. I really, I really think they uh, are not in the negotiation negotiating position they think they are. And TikTok doesn't need them as much as they think TikTok needs them. They're playing a dangerous game. All right. Before we jump in the next part of our show, we're going to take a quick break. Welcome to Neil's Numbers, the Thursday segment where I share three stats from the week's news that will make you spout off like will hunting. For my first number, you might be surprised to learn that Russia's economy is doing far better than expected nearly two years after it invaded Ukraine. The IMF said this week that Russia's GDP will rise 2.6% this year, more than double what the organization had projected as recently as October. This must be frustrating to the U.S. and its allies. Remember, after Russia invaded Ukraine, the the West unleashed the mother of all sanctions on Moscow in an attempt to cut it off from global financial markets, squeeze its ability to export oil, and overall hamper its economy to give Ukraine a fighting chance. But Russia appears to be weathering those sanctions just fine, not least because it's spending loads on its military, which is driving economic growth. Moscow allocated almost a third of its 2024 budget to defense, up from 14% in 2021, the year before it invaded Ukraine. I mean, let's go back to when it invaded Ukraine, consumers 
where businesses were pulling out of the country left and right. Russian billionaires were getting their yachts. They were getting their sports team seized. The country couldn't even make bond payments even if they wanted to, despite having the money to do it just because they were cut off from the global financial system. But then you look at how Russia kind of structured its economy. It's kind of built for this sanction environment. They've been building up their foreign reserves. They've been cutting their debt down. And they've actually developed alternatives to kind of that Western financial system, that swift payment system that governs like the international banking industry. So it is interesting to see this. Russia has clearly f seen the, the writing on the wall and has built their economy in a way that they can weather these sanction-fused storms. We'll see if it lasts in the long term, though, because this is a very distorted economy. You know, we saw the military-industrial complex kind of kick into gear in the United States with World War II. And so when you're spending so much on defense, kind of makes makes up for shortcomings in other areas of your economy. So economists aren't as bullish long-term on Russia, and they think these sanctions are going to work their way through the economy at some point. But for now, it is holding up much better than expected, and Putin's probably very happy about it. My second number can be encapsulated in a three-word headline, Syphilis is soaring. The STI, once nearly eradicated in the U.S., is surging with the rate of new infections reaching its highest level since 1950, according to a new report from the CDC. More than 207,000 cases were diagnosed in 2022, which is an 80% increase from 2018 and a 17% increase from the previous year. What's going on? There are a few theories. First is that syphilis rates have been rising along with substance use, which is tied to risky sexual behavior. Another issue is the lack of sexual health services around the country. Experts say there just isn't enough disease intervention specialists and nurses at the meager number of sexual health clinics in the U.S. Finally, COVID. COVID has been such a public health focus over the past few years that maybe we let our eye off the ball when it came to other types of infections. Whatever the reasons, officials say skyrocketing syphilis cases is a problem that needs to be addressed. I went down such a rabbit hole with this and started... <laughs> Uh, researching how syphilis ever made it to kind of uh, the widespread disease that it, it became and then was eventually eradicated. And Col Christopher Columbus was originally blamed for bringing syphilis back to Europe with him. There was this huge outbreak in the late 15th century when he returned from his voyage to the New World. But then there's all this debate in the scientific community is like, actually, no, it was way before him and there was probably by the time he arrived back in Europe there was three strains of syphilis present so it probably wasn't him and I was like what am I doing well, this is a business show I gotta do I gotta research you other been, stuff you should have been prepping about the FET I know exactly but yeah so if you want to go down a rabbit hole there is there is one right there but yes this this is a number that is definitely alarming public health officials and they want to find out what's going on and and spend more resources on trying to tamp down this surge my final number is a lot more exciting and optimistic retail is in a fantastic spot right now. In fact, the vacancy rate for shopping centers in the U.S. fell to its lowest level since records began in 2007. Turns out the pandemic and the spike in online shopping didn't lead to the retail apocalypse that many had predicted. Americans still like going to physical stores and retailers are taking notice. Yesterday, Walmart said it was opening 150 more large format locations across the country in the next five years, a testament to the 
enduring popularity of brick and mortar. One important note about this data, one of the main reasons that the vacancy rate is at a record low is that we've slowed down on building more strip malls, allowing retailers to soak up the space that is available. Last year, just 8 million square feet of new retail space was constructed, compared to 20 million in 2019, and an average of 41 million between 2008 and 2014. All in all, physical retail is looking really healthy right now. I mean, if we just zoom out for a second and think about what physical retail has been through, there was a bunch of store closings and bake uh, and bankruptcies when kind of the e-commerce revolution took out, and that was supposed to be the nail in the coffin of brick and mortar. And then COVID hit, leading to worries that it would literally never recovery. But as you said, people just really like shopping. They like going into to stores still. And then, yeah, combine that with like the depressed rates of construction. And you've got this retail renaissance that not a lot of people saw coming. Yeah, I think retailers are finding that you can have an online presence and a physical presence. And actually, there's symbiosis between the two. Studies have come out showing that when a retailer opens a physical location, it actually boosts their online sales as well because that physical location serves as marketing. Yeah, it's like a, it's a big brick and mortar advertising billboard right there that you can also shop in. Let's move on. Even though regulators have been cracking down on big tech mergers and acquisitions left and right, deals are still being done in a different realm, the sporting world. Just yesterday, we saw the PGA announce a deal to raise $1.5 billion from a group of U.S. investors, as well as a surprise sale of the Baltimore Oreos to private equity giant David Rubenstein. The PGA deal provided a much-needed cash infusion for golf's premier tour in its arms race against the Saudi-backed Live Tour, while the Orioles are just happy to have a deep-pocketed owner who also happens to be a Baltimore native. Neil, let's start with the PGA deal. This $1.5 billion, which is coming from a group including Falcons owner Arthur Blank, as well as Fenway Sports Group, is a much-needed cash infusion to help reward the players who stayed loyal. Yeah, I mean, this is so confusing, honestly. I mean, we pay attention to the golf world more than most, uh, but back in June... Uh, the PGA Tour and Lyft announced a shocking merger where there was this massive schism. There was break. There was a cr a crazy breakaway league uh, that left the PGA Tour, and then all of a sudden they shocked the world and said they would come back together. But over the past few months, the rest of 2023. There was very little details about what that merger meant, and now they are still kind of working together on coming together, uh, but also at the same time engaging in a arms race against each other as well. Liv has poached even more golfers, including John Rahm, for estimates of up to $500 million. And so PGA Tour is raising this war chest to be able to pay its own players and keep them from defecting to Liv, even as these merger negotiations still go on. Yeah, so it's those talks are still definitely going on. One of the reasons why those talks talks may have stalled a little bit was Congress got involved and were like, we don't really want you taking money from the Saudi investment fund. So this has kind of helped quell those talks a little bit, even while they're still happening in the background. A lot of money is going into the game and people think they're a good thing because they've always thought that the product could be improved and having maybe a more profit oriented or just some more business people involved in a organization that used to be a nonprofit is bullish in the long term, according to some people. Let's also talk about the Oriole deal a little bit. Rubenstein is an absolute uh, private equity kind of legend. He was kind of around before the, the crash started, said the writing was on the wall, but then also rode the, the wave out of uh, the crash after 2008 very well. Loves the Orioles. 
from Baltimore, alumni of Baltimore City College. He's been having his eye on the team for years now, and he finally got like the crown jewel of the one sports team that he really wanted. Yeah, you can't help but think that this is the new paradigm in sports. The billionaire class is the only one that can afford it now because the Angelos family, which uh, Rubenstein is buying the Orioles from, and I just want to make sure this to, to emphasize this is an agreement. The sale hasn't gotten through yet, but they've they've kind of agreed to the the major terms. When the Angelos uh, company uh, family bought uh, bought the Orioles in 1993, they were worth 173 million. And this guy was a union lawyer. You know, he he is rich, but he wasn't billionaire, mega billionaire rich. And this comes uh, just from a different era where you didn't have to be one of the richest people in the world to own a sports team. But now, as we've saw, there's a lot of parallels with Steve Cohen, the hedge fund billionaire who bought the Mets with Rubenstein buying the Orioles. And we're in this era now where you really have to be just one of the richest people in on the planet to be able to afford a sports team. The uh, the era of, you know, being a local hero and, you know, making a lot of money, but not billionaire money and buying a sports team is just over. Yeah, I think our window is, is shut, Neil, for owning any sports teams. But maybe like a fourth division English soccer team we could we could cobble the cash together. That's what all the celebs are doing these days. Finally, when was the last time someone simply checked in and asked how you were doing? For many of you, it seems to have been a long time because hundreds of thousands of people poured out their feelings to Elmo when the Sesame Street character popped the question on X this week. Yes, Elmo became the unwitting therapist of the internet when on Monday his account posted, Elmo is checking in, how is everyone doing? An innocent enough question, but it appears to have hit a nerve because it sparked an avalanche of people replying to Elmo and saying, you know what, Elmo, I am not doing okay. One YouTuber wrote, Elmo, I'm suffering from existential dread over here. Another wrote, Elmo, each day the abyss we stare into grows a unique horror, one that was previously unfathomable in nature. Our inevitable doom, which once accelerated in years or months, now accelerates in hours, even minutes. In all, this post was viewed more than 140 million times in what some say is a reflection of the mental health crisis gripping the country. Why do you think this went so viral? I think it's partially because that Elmo Elmo has such a unique way of speaking and, and talking in third person like that, allowed people to kind of co-opt the way he speaks. And and this juxtaposition between existential dread and nihilism and like cute little Elmo and and, and using his, his way of speaking, I thought just made this a very ripe opportunity to kind of have this cathartic moment as a rallying together on the internet. And yeah, I mean, I checked this morning, the post is coming in on 200 million impressions. Like wow. it is really ramping up. Unfortunately, the brands have gotten involved like Chipotle and Sour Patch Kids. So that's when you know it hits kind of a critical mass breaking point, but it was a fun internet moment for sure. It's a fun internet moment, but I think it's a little more poignant and deep. And you know, I realized that maybe I haven't asked uh, someone that question recently. And it's a good reminder that, you know, every, every, now and again, you should take some time out and ask your friends or anyone like, hey, how's it going? How are you doing? Like, don't just give me the good. Give me like the real answer. And I think that's what people uh, really responded to with Elmo. They, they he's a character from their childhood, feel like they can kind of open up right. to him. And there's a lot of nostalgia involved. But you know, I think it did remind me to say, ask the question once in a while. So, so. if you need to get something off your chest, go ahead to X, head to Twitter, quote, tweet it and just tell Elmo what you're feeling.
I just want to know if someone's checking on Elmo. <laughs> yeah, that's tweet it out. All right, that is all the time we have for today. Have a wonderful Thursday, everyone. If you're listening to your first episode after hearing about us in the newsletter, first of all, welcome. We are very glad to have you. Second, we'd love to hear what you thought, so feel free to send all your feedback to Morning Brew Daily at morningbrew.com. Let's roll the credits. Emily Milliron is our editor and producer. Raymond Liu is our associate producer. Yuchenawa Ogu is our technical director. Billy Menino is on audio. Hair and makeup is doing just fine, Elmo. Thank you for asking. Devin Emery is our chief content officer, and our show is a production of Morning Brew. Great show today, Neil. Let's run it back tomorrow. Tomorrow.